This is Circulating Ideas. I'm Steve Thomas. My guest today is Molly Schwartz. She's a trained archivist and audio producer at the Metropolitan New York Library Council. She's also the host and producer of Preserve This Podcast. Circulating Ideas is brought to you with support from MoMetrics and from listeners just like you. Find out how you can help support the show by going to circulatingideas.com slash support. With library budgets constantly shrinking, it's getting harder and harder to provide the resources your library patrons want and need. That's why the folks at MoMetrics Test Preparation created the MoMetrics eLibrary. Through their eLibrary portal, MoMetrics offers study guides and practice questions for over 1,800 different exams covering college entrance, graduate school, nursing, medical, teacher certification, civil service, I'm counting this on my fingers, I'm running out of fingers, and many other careers and fields of study. All fully customizable and at a fraction of the cost of printed books. It's like having an entire library of test prep materials all at your fingertips. So, save space, save paper, and save money with Mometrics eLibrary. To get a free demo and 10% off your first purchase, visit goelibrary.com and let them know you came from Circulating Ideas by using the promo code PODCAST. That's goelibrary.com, promo code PODCAST. Molly, welcome to Circulating Ideas. Hi, Steve. Thanks so much for having me. So we're mostly going to talk about the Preserve This Podcast project, but um, I wanted to find out how you got involved in kind of the library sphere. You're kind of on the archive end of that, but how, how did you get involved with li- in the library sphere in the first place? Sure. So way back in 2013, I graduated from the University of Maryland's library science program. So I actually got a degree in library science with a specialization in archives. And I had been interested in going into that field because I'd been a history major and just was always very into like books, <laughs> you know, not not a particularly original start. <laughs> right. Um, But the library and archives field really appealed to me because it meant that I could keep studying some of the academic things I'd been interested in, but without having to focus so deeply like you do in academia. Like, I loved the idea of working with people. Um, And then through there, I became really aware of and interested in all the ways that people are using digital platforms to provide access to information. And so by the time I graduated library school, like, I went in being, like, rare books all the way, and then I left being, like fascinated with digital collections aggregators and you know trying to learn as much about that as I could and so since then my career path has been pretty winding Um, I would say everything that I've done relates to how people share information and communicate with each other and the way that the mediums that they do that through affects the content and the longevity of the content as well Um, and so then when I ended up back at the Metropolitan New York Library Council after working in kind of non-library institutions. I was bringing some of what I'd done with like media production and storytelling into my work as an archivist, and I was really interested in how those two could meet. Yeah, and one of the interesting things is that when you first started talking about where you said, oh, yeah, um, rare books, and then going to that, you, you would think you would almost go into digitizing old stuff, but you're, you do a lot of work with just born digital things. I mean, you're, you're not even taking the stuff from the past and making it digital. You're starting with the born digital kind of stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I really think that was partly because I got more interested in kind of um, 
I don't know what you'd call it, like citizen media production, but all these platforms where people could share their stories that maybe weren't going through as official platforms. So I was really into like YouTube and certain kinds of YouTube videos and podcasts. And I just thought it was this amazing movement that I was witnessing. And the more that I learned about digital preservation and archiving, the more I realized that in many ways, this content is more at risk than some of those old books. Like it's more at risk of disappearing. Right. Um, so before, before we really get into some of that, the, the work, can you tell the listeners a little bit about um, Metro, about the Metropolitan New York Library Council for people who maybe don't know what it is? So the Metropolitan New York Library Council, and we just go by Metro because that's such a long name and it's from the 60s. <laughs> uh, it's one of nine library councils throughout the state of New York that are funded by the state. They're nonprofits and they basically act as these regional hubs for resource sharing and programming for libraries, archives, and museums within their region. And so Metro's region is New York City and Westchester County, and we've done all kinds of things. We coordinate book delivery between our member institutions. We do some digital collections hosting. We host a lot of workshops and trainings for like professional development for librarians and archivists. And then I came on to open this kind of media studio, which is almost like this digital library studio. Um, so we're basically a hub for libraries, archives, and museums, but also for, we see ourselves as also being a resource for anyone kind of in the information and media and memory space. Well, one of the things that you did, um, because when, when you started there, you were a fellow and now you're on staff, I believe is that, that's correct, right? Yeah. Yeah. I started as a Metro fellow. Um, I, that was back in 2016, fall of 2016 for nine months. Yeah. And then, and when you were a fellow, you started um, a podcast there, Library Bite Geist. Can you talk about what you, why you wanted to start that podcast, and who, who, who all you did that with? Sure. So, in some ways, I kind of started podcasting by necessity, as wild as that might sound. Um, I had originally been interested in kind of building out what I called like a story lab for libraries and archives. And I envisioned people bringing in their objects and us creating little like videos and sound clips Mm -hmm. with their stuff. Um, But the issue was that when I came on, the timing was just a bit off and Metro was moving offices. So I didn't have any place to build this lab. And um, so we were kind of without an office for about six months out of my nine-month fellowship and so I was thinking of like how can I still incorporate storytelling into what I'm doing but have it be able to be a bit more mobile and it just so happened I learned once I got there that Metro used to have a podcast and so we had this podcasting equipment and um, so as soon as I saw the microphones I was just like okay there's my idea (laughs) I'm gonna take these microphones around and talk to librarians and archivists yes but also kind of see what interesting stories are bubbling up in the library and archive space within New York City. So I say in the tagline for Library Bite Geist, it's stories from the front lines and fringes of libraries. And that's really how I saw it. I wanted to capture both like some of the more forward thinking things that were happening, like what are some of the changes going on? And also what are the like kind of unexpected weird things that are happening in libraries or affecting libraries that people might not think of and dive into those. I, I very much enjoyed your Dewey Decimal episode. So, oh, awesome! Yeah, that was that episode was actually really hard. Like, it ended up I tore it apart and put it back together <laughs> so many times. But usually, I have found the episodes that give me the most grief come out the strongest <laughs> in the end. So it's all part of the process. 
so where so af- after you're doing the podcast was where, where at what point i mean either either during the production of that podcast or just your other work or your thinking in general when did preservation of podcasts kind of become an interest of yours when did you realize that was something that was important kind of specifically to podcasts yeah so i ended up meeting people at conferences actually i met um Mary Kidd because we had both been national digital stewardship residents and so there was an NDSR symposium down in DC and Mary and I connected and she's done work with audio preservation she did her NDSR residency at New York Public Labor New York Public Radio at WNYC and um, we connected and I felt like I was kind of like producing audio and interested in audio collections and she had, she had some experience with audio preservation and we got to talking and she immediately was like you need to connect to Dana Gerber Margie and so the three of us had this three-way Skype call and they were the ones that really enlightened me about the fact that podcasting is such a fragile medium and Dana has really been more embedded in like the podcasting world for a lot longer than I have and um, so she understood kind of what the trends have been and what makes podcasts so at risk um, which a big thing is the fact that they're distributed via RSS feed and so then the three of us started scheming and at first we were trying to there are some we decided like maybe a good thing to do would be to go out for a grant together and kind of like put our three audio archivist heads together um but a lot of the grant money we were finding was really focused at preserving old analog collections so like audio that's on magnetic media that's obviously degrading right and we've all felt kind of frustrated because we were like why is born digital not getting paid any attention um especially when we from our experience know that it's so at risk and so that's what made us decide like why don't we just formulate our dream project like what would we do if we could just do anything and propose that to the Mellon foundation and they decided to fund it and that that became the preserve this podcast project which has several different aspects to it um the first one is the the meta thing of doing a podcast itself about preserving podcasts um and that's i I think the main push there but you also have a zine and you're doing workshops and conferences and um i want to talk through those a little bit but um before we get into kind of specifically what you're doing can you talk about what are some of the unique challenges of preserving podcasts and we mentioned a little bit there but what are some more of the unique things other than like the rss distribution Sure. I mean, so the main thing is that it's digital and that a lot of people are creating podcasts on their own. They're kind of these indie podcast producers, so they don't necessarily have resources or an institution behind them providing them with knowledge or back-end systems about the needs of digital media. And so when it comes to digital stuff, the issues usually are that people are producing things at such volume so it's hard to know even what you have because you're creating so many files so things kind of easily get lost and it's also the stuff that you have is very at the same issue about creating things at volume means that things can also be deleted or lost at volume so if you spill coffee on a hard drive you can lose an immense amount of your stuff and then on top of that you have the fact that digital content is not human readable so in order for it to be accessible years down the road you also need to preserve all the software and hardware pieces that go together to make that content renderable so that humans can listen to it or read it And so when you bring all those pieces together, it just means that it's fragile and people don't realize it. So the common things are 
people aren't labeling their files correctly, so their files are just a mess and they don't know what's in there. They haven't been backing them up in multiple places. They aren't checking on their hard drives every five years, so the hard drive dies and then they lose stuff. Um, all these kinds of things. Just I see it, the basic issues as, like, first of all, not knowing what you have, and second of all, not taking the precautions to ta- to save that stuff. Yeah, I, I think I think that part of what you said of the the fact that it's all, they're all kind of just these individual people making that is one of the bigger p- parts of it because so if a big institution does it, they might have some backup of their own somewhere. Which there's some issues there with accessibility of how much they can leave have that open to people. But yeah, if it's just on you know if there's whatever five billion podcasts and they're on five billion different compute people's hard drives, that's kind of hard. <laughs> Totally. And it was really, we designed this whole thing with indie producers in mind because we felt like they were the ones with the most need probably. And they're the ones that also have made podcasting such a special medium. Like we've been able to hear all these stories and all these other voices that we haven't heard on other types of mainstream media. And so the fact that those were the ones that were the most at risk was kind of felt urgent and like heartbreaking. Yeah, I, I I could tell you we're not uh, aiming. I mean, you're inclusive of archivists and librarians and stuff as part of your audience, but you spend a lot of time explaining what the locks thing is. It's like, oh, we do that in library school. We know all about that. But yeah. <laughs> you, but, but but people who are not in library school and don't learn about lots of copy, copies keep stuff safe. It's important to understand that concept. So you, you, I think I thought you've spent a good amount of time on that of explaining why that's so important. Yeah. And actually, I will say, even though this is aimed at indies and a lot of this stuff would be kind of like digital preservation 101 for a lot of archivists, I have gotten a surprising amount of people from kind of bigger podcasting institutions reaching out to us Hmm. and kind of saying like, we actually don't have that much of a plan. Could you like talk to us about what you'd recommend which also gets trickier from our viewpoint because it's one thing to put together a plan for like one person's podcast and a whole other thing to put together a plan for like a podcast network (laughs) where you have a lot of different producers touching stuff and a lot of exchanging files back and forth and like yeah so anyway so we've been surprised at how useful a lot of different people have found this information but that's good that even that it gets them thinking about that kind of thing. So, I mean, a lot of those um, independent kind of podcast networks will create their own CMSs and things like that. And But it's good for them to think about it of what they need to put in their CMS, even of what kind of metadata they need to be capturing when they're uploading things and not just what makes it easiest to get it from here to Apple <laughs> or, or whatever. Absolutely. And I will also say full, di- full disclosure, part of what made me, Mary and Dana um, want to do this project or part of what... M- made me want to do this project once I heard about this concept more from Mary and Dana was that um, even being an archivist I was not practicing good preservation on my own podcast like I considered myself an indie producer because I had just started something up it was a little bit experimental I wasn't sure if it was even going to last Um, I was still learning how to podcast so I felt like Mm -hmm. you know some episodes were like pretty rough and so I wasn't I didn't know what I could do on my own to keep the file safe and I certainly wasn't doing it and so I knew like even if I'm an archivist and know some of like the core concepts I wouldn't have thought of like oh apply that even to something that might not feel so significant to me right now but might be significant down the road or like could grow into something anyway yeah so I feel like sometimes as archivists we also have this hat on where like 
if content is not within our collections policy or it doesn't carry some like evidential value or some like great cultural importance, then it's like not worthy of preservation. Um, and I was like, if I'm applying this even to my own podcast, and I'm sure a lot of other people are. Yeah. So that was also part of what made us feel like this would be a good thing to do. Yeah. And we've, we've talked a little bit of email and a little before the recording of that, that, you know, I've learned quite a bit from mine. I hope um, people will start to see some difference in in what I'm doing here too, based on some of the stuff that I learned on there. A lot of it I think will be invisible because a lot of this stuff is not visible to the listener. It's more, you know, for long-term preservation of these things, but things like uh, I, I, for forever now, my, my early episodes, I don't have the raw audio anymore because at some point I decided when I switched computers at some point, like three or four years ago, I was going to dump all that. So literally all I have is the, is the final episode. So now I'm going back and I'm reorganizing all my audio and stuff. But, you know, I, don't, I just don't have that anymore because I didn't even I wasn't thinking about that. I was like, oh, all I need is the final product. But it, yeah, that's was probably a mistake. So. <laughs> yeah. Do you wish that you had some of that raw, the raw interviews now? Yeah, some of it, especially because I, 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 I'm a little I, I feel like I've learned some over the years that I do better with the interviews now. So I don't I don't the early days I cut a lot because I would ramble like crazy all over the place and. I would record for an hour for a half an hour episode. So now there's like all this content that was actually good content, but it was more me not asking a question in a good way or getting far afield or something like that, that I wish I had that stuff back now. But yeah, I do. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It all requires maintenance. Yeah. But that's, but that's, that's the thing you, you learn and then you do better going forward. And that's what we're all working toward now. Um, one totally. of the other thing, one of the other things I, I'd like you to tell the story um, briefly is the story. I think it's in the first episode you talk about Alice Hom, who has the um, historically queer podcast, and that was one that she had what, recorded on cassette tapes <laughs> way back when, and she wanted to turn it into a podcast. And but it was sort of. Can, can you kind of tell her story? Sure. Yeah. So Alice Y. Hom, um, she's from California, and she, when she was growing up, she's gay and. Um, she hadn't had and she's also her parents were Chinese immigrants and she felt like she hadn't had access to a lot of like stories of other Asian American lesbians and that had like really affected her like process of coming out when she started finding some books written by like queer women and so she became really passionate about like collecting these stories together um, partly as an academic pursuit and partly as a personal one. Um, but there just really wasn't that much out there. She said she had a bookshelf, like a couple feet long and she had maybe like a couple inches of books written by queer women of color. And so then as she was graduating, she became really interested in trying to like meet people and do oral history interviews with queer women of color, especially who had participated in different activist movements in the 60s and 70s. And so then Alice went on to get a master's degree in Asian American studies at UCLA, and she started this whole oral history project, and she interviewed over 50 lesbians of color, and a lot of them had been played significant roles in activist movements like... um, the Black Panther movement and the Young Lords and their roles hadn't really been acknowledged but so Alice had all these interviews collected on cassette tapes and she had been storing them in her closet and she eventually 
got this, I think she got a grant from the Soros Foundation to start a podcast called Historically Queer. And she wanted to use the interviews on these cassette tapes and turn them into a podcast. And so she knew, she learned some things about archiving. She digitized all the tapes and she was kind of like taking measures to preserve the tapes. But as she was starting her podcast, she had never even thought that she would need to preserve her podcast. Like that thought never crossed her mind. Um, And so, yeah, so that's kind of Alice's story. And a big part of her making the podcast was wanting to make sure that other people had access to the kinds of stories that she hadn't had access to growing up and that her work didn't just stay in an academic context, which I really think is the power of podcasting. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very democratizing. So that's why I, I think as we see now, big money kind of trying to come into podcasting. It's like the, the independent podcasting movement that built podcasts over the past decade, two decades. I was pushing back against that because that's the whole kind of point of podcasting is that anybody can, anybody can listen, anybody can do it. And we don't really want paywalls necessarily. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. A lot is changing right now. And that was part of like, it feels like if there's any time to like fight back and define what podcasting will be it's now um, an- another kind of character going through the podcast and um that I, d- I don't know if you didn't identify him in the first episode or if it just didn't click with me but jason scott um created the pod sucker and then later on it clicked with me that that's jason scott from the internet archive <laughs> when you bring him back yeah. kind of in a later episode <laughs> um can you kind of talk about what the pod sucker was Sure. So I was really excited when I learned about Jason Scott and the work that he'd done with podcasting. So he does work at the Internet Archive. He calls himself a free range archivist, and he has been just on his own obsessed with collecting Internet ephemera for years. And I didn't actually intro him as working at the Internet Archive in the prologue, which is when I first brought him in, um, because I partly because of time like we were really trying to be economical and I knew we were going to get into internet archive in the last episode but um so back in 2005 Jason Scott was not working at the internet archive yet he was a systems administrator at another tech company so he worked with servers and he was very like proficient with technology and he started seeing podcasting really take off and become a thing like they first created the audio enclosure for RSS back in like 2000-2001 and then by 2005 that was really when you had your first wave of like bloggers and people start to put things out over audio and as podcasts and he realized because he knows how servers work and he knows that pretty much every kind of data storage machine dies about every five years that these podcasts were all going to disappear and probably no one was collecting them and so he built this machine in his basement of his house he named it the pod sucker because he likes to name his <laughs> machines and he named it the pod sucker because the goal was to suck up all the podcasts using this machine and so he wrote some scripts to basically go to different podcast directories so something like the apple podcast library and just write write a script to auto download all the podcasts that all the podcast episodes that come out on that directory and burn them onto DVDRs, so onto discs in his basement. And so he left it running all day and all night. I think from like 2004 to 2007, and he captured over 14,000 podcast episodes. And he's now uploaded it as an 
uh, collection onto the Internet Archive as the 2005 podcast core sample. And I was partly really excited to find this because when I was doing Preserve This Podcast and going around telling people that podcasts are a fragile medium, everybody's first question is, well, has stuff been disappearing? And that's really hard to say because there is no central podcast directory. Part of podcasting being this decentralized open medium means that there's no gatekeeper and therefore no one is keeping track of all the podcasts that are being created. And so I was kind of like, I can't really say what podcasts were there and what podcasts are gone now. And so finding this collection on the Internet Archive was like, you know, finding gold. I was like, okay, here is a snapshot of like, not a totally comprehensive collection, but at least some kind of collection from 2005 of the podcasts that used to exist. And um, I started going through all of them and I actually didn't go through the whole collection on the Internet Archive because there was a lot of them there and it was just taking a ton of time where I was basically going through and searching to see if I could find any evidence of that podcast episode still accessible online. And first I would check if it's like in the Apple Podcasts directory because people sometimes think of apple Podcasts as like a podcast library which it's totally not Mm -hmm. um and then going to see if they were anywhere else online like if there was still an active website if it has somehow been like cached in the wayback machine something like that and what i found from the sample that i looked at was that 87 percent of these podcasts had totally disappeared like i think it was like 90s a high 90s percent Hmm. were no longer in apple Podcasts, which is where most people go to find stuff um but like 87% had totally vanished. And so it's possible that those, that those, some of those podcasts are still on people's own computers. Like maybe the audio does exist somewhere, but it's not publicly accessible. Right. Hmm. Or if it is, it's got bad metadata and it'll never be found. So it might, it's sort of like a misshelled book in a library. It may as well be gone (laughs) because you're never going to find it. So exactly. (sighs) Yeah. That's a shame. Um, so another um, project, uh, related project in the preserve this podcast um, overall overarching thing is a zine that goes along with it. Can you talk about um, why you wanted to do a zine? I know Mary does the illustrations in it, so I assume she was part of the decision making process there. She totally was. And we had seen some other projects where people made really great zines for kind of like personal digital archiving because zines are a very cheap and easy way to kind of give out a packet of information or like a guide of like a step of how to's so people at like the dc public library's um memory lab project had done a zine and mary is an illustrator she's an artist so this seemed like a classic fit and also to me like podcasts and zines they're both very like punk rock ways of self-publishing and they just seem like a a perfect match um and so that had been part of the idea from the beginning was to do basically a zine guide of how to preserve your podcast and actually the idea for the podcast came up after the zine and we were like these could complement each other so nicely where people Mm -hmm. could kind of if you're a podcaster, you probably listen to podcasts. Mm -hmm. And um, so you can have this like maybe more narrative, someone talking to you version of like, what are some of the issues and what you can do? And then you can also have this physical piece of paper that gives you exercises so that you can implement what you've been listening to. And the zine is available on preservethispodcast.org. Anyone can print it out. And we also have some printed versions that we bring along with us to our workshops. Well, speaking of those, those workshops, I was going to ask about that next. Um, what kind of um, workshops have you been doing? Because I've seen, I mean, they're all obviously podcast preservation related, but they've been on kind of different topics and stuff. Can you talk about what you've been doing and what you have kind of coming up for workshops and conferences? 
Sure. So the idea with the workshops is, I mean, a lot of people, including myself, I think, work best in person. Like maybe they, maybe you listen to the podcast and maybe you see the zine, but you have some questions specific to your particular project or you just want to dedicate this like specific time when you're in a room with a bunch of people who are also preserving their work to just like get it done. And so we decided to do these traveling workshops and again all of this work was funded by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation so that's how we're able to like travel around and offer these workshops for free and so we tried to find what we considered like hubs where there would be a lot of podcasters and so that's like the main workshop model is we basically go it's like a three to four hour workshop we go through each of the steps that we talk about in the podcast and the zine and we kind of take time to actually do the exercises with people in person so it is all based on the same module that I should also back up for a second and say that at the beginning of the project, Mary Dana and I, the first thing that we did was made this kind of like core curriculum of like, here's how you preserve a podcast. And we kind of divided it up into modules and those modules map to the zine and to the podcast. So the first module is like organization. The second one is storage. The third is metadata. And then we kind of ended up adding on this bit about RSS because we saw that we had to get into that. Um, And so those are the things that we cover in the workshops. And so we've done one at the at Metro in New York City. We've done one in Emeryville, California. I wasn't there, but the rest of the team was, including Sarah Nguyen, our amazing project coordinator, who's really stepped up and is like part of the core team. Um, we've done one in Austin at the University of Texas at Austin, um, and then also speaking at the Outlier Festival. And then we have ones coming up in Denver at the House of Pod, in Boston at the Podcast Garage, um, down in North Carolina at the Center for Documentary Studies. In Emeryville, we were at the Center for Investigative Reporting. And so basically, we've just been trying to find where hubs of people are. And we also have been presenting at more kind of like audio and library conferences just to get the word out about our project so those are places where maybe our presentations would be more of like a powerpoint presentation um and trying to be like gripping for our audience but they're not like the full workshop so we presented it on air fest in new york at the work it podcast festival in new york they uh dana and sarah presented at outlier festival in austin and we'll be going down to ala Um, in DC and also doing kind of satellite workshops at the DC Public Library and at Rhizome so there's a lot happening (laughs) that's awesome and I will be at ALA as well so I hope I can pop in on some of those so amazing Um, and I and I encourage other people too as well this this episode will be out in plenty of time for people to hear this and get to ALA (laughs) yeah please join us at ALA we have a presentation on Saturday so that'll be me Mary and Sarah Um, And you'll kind of get some of the overview of the project in the presentation. And then you can come to one of the actual workshops on Friday or Sunday. And all this is on our website at preservethispodcast.org. That is awesome. Um, So I was going to ask if people had questions where they can go. That's a good place right there, preserveyourpodcast.org. Preserve the, I keep saying preserve your podcast, preserve this podcast. That's part of the idea. We love, yes. I mean, we've been calling, I think, some of our workshops preserve your podcast because I liked the idea with that the name is kind of like a call to action. It's like preserve this podcast, like preserve my podcast, preserve your mm-hmm. podcast, preserve our podcast. It all, all, it all, all the podcasts. <laughs> yeah. 
All right. Well, Molly, thank you so much for um, coming on the show and telling my listeners about your project. I, we didn't go. I didn't want to go too deep into much of it because I wanted I want people to go listen to the podcast and read the zine because they're both great and they do like you said they complement each other. So it's not like you had you do one or the other. They kind of work together um, to get you um, all educated on how to preserve your podcast. And I mean, I think it also applies. I think to other um, digital resources. It's specifically to podcasts, but I think you could apply it to other things as well. It absolutely does. And one thing I would like to say is we are really eager to get feedback from archivists and librarians on this, and we're super excited to see people potentially spin off this model to other kinds of digital media or other kinds of communities. Um, so our website is built on GitHub. You can fork it and reuse it. Everything is open under like a CCBY license. Um, please reuse, remix, and get in touch with us if you have any questions. And again, that's preservethispodcast.org if you want to find the contact information or drop in on them at ALA Annual <laughs> or one of their upcoming workshops. So. Totally. And also, I should say on Twitter at preservethispod, and you can email podcast at metro.org. All right. Well, thank you so much, Molly, and um, good luck preserving your podcast in the future. Thank you, Steve. Same to you. Circulating Ideas is produced by Steve Thomas in the suburbs of Atlanta. Views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of my place or work or the place of work of guests. For past interviews, visit circulatingideas.com and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or your podcast app of choice. And help others find the show by leaving a rating or a review. You can follow the show on Twitter at CircIdeas or like the show's Facebook page. Music is by Pamela Klicka. Thanks for listening and keep circulating your ideas. Thanks again to Mometrics Test Preparation for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. To get 10% off your first purchase and a free demo, visit goelibrary.com and use that promo code podcast. That's goelibrary.com, promo code podcast.